Title 35 of the United States Code, Section 103, mandates that a patent not be given when the differences between the subject matter sought to be patented and the prior art are such that the subject matter as a whole would have been obvious at the time of the invention was made to a person having ordinary skill in the art. Welcome to Skill in the Art. We are Intellectual Property Aggies, and I am your host, Preston Morgan. I'm here with you for another Business Casual episode. You know the drill. We take time to get to know the leaders in the field of IP. Today, our guest is Professor Irene Kaboli, a professor here at Texas A&M. Currently, she is teaching in Singapore. She is from Italy, and here she is to tell us all about it. Good morning, Preston. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, as Presser just mentioned, I have been living in Singapore for the past four and a half years. Um, I am currently um, a visiting professor at one of the two law schools of Singapore Management University School of Law. And uh, um, before, I was a visiting professor at National University of Singapore uh, Faculty of Law. And um, I really enjoyed my time in Singapore so far, uh, both professionally and personally. Um, I moved to Singapore uh, for family reason, uh, for my husband's work uh, initially, and uh, it's been an incredible uh, experience for myself, for my family, for my children. Um, Singapore is in many ways a crossroad. Um, mm. It's um, a tiny little island uh, is also called the red dot uh, right, in red the dot. in the in the maps uh, because uh, you know it's very small, but at the same time is um, a very prominent uh, place uh, for uh, culture, for art, for discourse, for trade. Um, uh, it's uh, to me a place where West and East, so Asia and the West uh, fuse uh, very well. At the same time, is in many ways a crossroad between North Asia and South Asia. There is a lot of influence from um, China, uh, of course, um, from Japan. We have many Japanese friends, many Japanese experts who live in Singapore, mm. um, Korea, but equal uh, influence uh, from uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, um, India, uh, a, a, a component of the uh, population uh, from Singapore, in fact, is of Indian origin, not just Chinese origin and Malay origin. And uh, um, that's to me, um, it's, uh, it's unique. It's something really, really special. I like to live in a place with um, a lot of people from all over the world. Mm. Um, uh, and being in Singapore makes us closer to Australia and New Zealand. Mm. Often we uh, we like down under, but we don't think uh, so often of down under um, in the same way that we do being at the equator because we are really in the middle between the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere. Mm. Um, and we have many European friends. There is people from all over Europe, people from the United States, Canada, um, um, some also from Latin America. So it's really, it's really a melting pot in many ways where yeah. we can um, enjoy uh, food from everywhere, people from everywhere, and um, 
It's also a very safe country. Mm. Um, I'm in a stage of my life with two little kids. I mean, not that little anymore, but 10 and 8, in which I do really appreciate the fact that my children can take a taxi on their own and can go on a bus mm. um, with no problems. And mm. you know that people around will always help. Um, as a you know, as a woman, I personally treasure very much the fact that I can walk anywhere at night, day, and I feel very safe. And and um, and that to me is something important. So I like, I very much like um, Singapore also for the safety. Everything works, but there is so much art and so much um, interesting things that yeah. for us is a is really a treat to be able to live there. Mm-hmm. But. Uh but you weren't always, you know, you're not from Singapore, you're from, you're from Italy, right? Yeah, I was born and raised in Italy, and uh, there is where I lived um, until I, I mean, officially until I was 30. Um, I studied um, uh, in London two years, and I also uh, spent considerable time in Spain uh, mm. the decade before, and I did part of my um, law degree uh, in France. Um, and um, I moved to the United States in 2001 um, again because I, I um, you know, I met my boyfriend that then later became my husband, and uh, and uh, and so we decided that um, the U.S. was uh, probably the best option for us. I was very fortunate um, to find the job I wanted to do, my dream job, to be a law professor. Um, in a university that was very close to my husband's job um, in Wisconsin. I was a professor at Marquette University for several years. And um, and then that just worked out. Sometimes you don't know how life works out and mm-hmm. takes you different places. You just have to go with the flow and uh, not put limits at what you think you want to do. And uh, now I never thought about Dallas and Fort Worth and Texas. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think... Uh, uh, Fort Worth is a wonderful place, yeah. and uh, um, and so you you just have to see what life brings to you and uh, and take it. And uh, of course, you know I'm very proud of my Italian heritage, even if I don't really know why. I just feel like it's <laughs> my identity. I like the fact that Italy is beautiful. Italy is great food. Mm. Um, I miss it, but I also very fortunate to be able to live a life that brought me so many different places. Yeah, yeah. And um, have you always loved to travel? This is is it, just, is it just like part of you now? I have always loved to travel. I think it comes with the fact that my family, uh, my mom and my dad, um, did like to travel, um, and um, they're both professors. They were academics in a, the field of classics. And uh, they, um, when myself and my brother were little, went to many conferences and they took us with them. Um, They also were strongly incentivizing us to learn languages and to spend time abroad. In Europe, it was easier because just a few hours trip, you can be in France or Switzerland or Mm -hmm. Germany um, or the United Kingdom and where a lot of things are different. You can speak a foreign language. And my parents, for my parents, was always very important that um, 
their children got exposed to um, different languages and learned them. And they found that the best way to learn a language was really not so much to learn it in school, but to spend time in a different mm-hmm. country doing activity with other kids. Mm-hmm. And so I spent considerable amount of time as a, as a child and as a teenager in France, in Germany, um, uh, in, in country outside Italy, um, doing sports, doing other things with um, um, just local people. And I loved it. And um, uh, later on, when I was uh, um, in high school and later at the university, we also, uh, myself and my friend, did many trips together. Um, the schools in Italy are also very strong in uh, put, put bringing people away. Um, uh, throughout my high school, every year we did a, a, a school trip um, to a, a foreign country. And that was very affordable. The school really made a point to put everybody in a bus for a very affordable amount. And uh, they took us to Paris. They took us to Luxembourg. Mm-hmm. Um, they took us to, um, to, to Germany. And, um, and was, you know, a public school, uh, you know, it was a, a classical high school. But um, I think perhaps there is something in the Italian mentality that we're born with a suitcase ready to go. <laughs> and, uh, and I like it. Um, growing, I mean, now that I'm older, I see the value. And um, to travel brings you out of your comfort zone. I, mm-hmm. My comfort zone probably is still on a more... Um, Western slash Latin, uh, you know, I speak Spanish, I speak French, I speak, of course, Italian and, and, and English, a little mm. bit of German, but um, uh, I was not that familiar with Asia. And uh, Singapore is a very um, Asia light sometimes, mm. it's very European. Uh, but there are other countries that are much more... Um, no, they have their own identity on a on a on a stronger basis. They're a bigger country, and initially it was a little bit um, uh, challenging, or mm. um, I was a little bit more anxious. And then, because I don't speak the language, mm. and uh, um, will I be able to understand? Will I be able to eat and understand what I'm doing? Understand where I'm going? And and uh, I yet, yet again learned to uh, be very relaxed and just take things as they come and people very helpful and uh, but to travel puts you out of your comfort zone always and it's something that enriches you as a person Uh, but at the same time you have to be ready to be very tolerant and be very open-minded and uh, even if I traveled and lived in so many places sometimes I have you know it's challenging it's always Mm -hmm. a process Mm -hmm. so is it uh, it do you do you enjoy traveling to countries that you know you understand the language better, or is it, you know, do you see it as like a, a fun challenge? That um, I would say that again, you know, growing older, we become perhaps a little bit more conservative and and, and lazy, less uh, willing to explore. So, uh, I have a sense of comfort in going to places I I think I know better, mm. but I am very excited to do something different. Mm. Um, I have loved to go to Cambodia. I love to go to Laos. I have got I love to go to Vietnam and and uh, Indonesia. These are countries where I truly enjoy um, going, despite the traffic sometimes and. Uh, um, I love to go to India. Um, I really enjoy um, traveling um, in India. And uh, um, it's about, you know, uh, every travel is a journey. You really have to be 
open-minded and I'm very lucky because because of my my job I've been able to do a lot of travel um, and at the same time though the the bad side of that is that you travel so much for work that then you are tired to plan a vacation traveling. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I always try to go to a new place every year uh, where there is some archaeology. I like archaeology because mm-hmm. it reminds us of the past. I think mm-hmm. we should never forget the past and learn from the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I like to go to the sea, so I like to go to places that combine the sea and archaeology, if possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, do your, your children love it to you? Uh, my children really like uh, living in Asia, living in Singapore. Uh, what not to like? You know, you are uh, Singaporean. That is a, is a, as I said, is a very safe place, but is an also very child friendly. Um, schools are excellent. They go to um, uh, international schools. They have uh, um, lots of facilities for them. Um, being at the equator, you are in a short and, and, and short, um, you know, in a T-shirt every every day of the year. Mm-hmm. You can swim every year of the year. So uh, there are many, many um, good things. I think my children are very fortunate, mm-hmm. very, very fortunate children. And I think they know it, uh, mm-hmm. but I hope they will know it better and better. Uh, kids... Um, like my children, being able to expose to so much um, at a young age are very fortunate. So you were saying earlier how uh, your parents are both professors. Is that uh, kind of what inspired you to become one? Um, I think so. I uh, It's actually worse than that. Uh, my, my dad is a professor of classics. My mom is a professor of history of rhetoric. And my mom has um, uh, two sisters and a brother, uh, our two sisters were professors, and uh, my uncle is also a professor of engineering. And um, my uncle, uh, so the husband of my my uh, one of my uh, aunt, is a professor of veterinarian. Many of my cousins are also professors. So that's basically. That's what I knew. Many of my friends in high school, their mom and dad were professors, so I really grew up with all these professors around me. And so you, 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 you are raised by a professor, you grow up professing, and you, you, you want to become one. Um, to a large extent, I, I continue to study. Um, I finished my law degree. I did uh, a doctorate in law, and then I did an LLM, uh, another diploma. And um, and then eventually I actually decided I had to practice because um, as an academic, you need to know what the um, practice is. I, I was mm. certified as a lawyer, but I didn't have that extensive practical experience. So I did take some time off and I practiced um, uh, also using my international background at that point and was very, very useful because as a law professor, um, you do need to know what practice want. You need to stay update uh, 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 with practice uh, because most of your students are not going to be academics and you really need to give them a well-rounded um, perspective on theory and practice. Um, professors, uh, particularly in the legal academia in the United States, are not a full-time practitioner, which I think is a, is a very important thing because we need to... Uh, dedicate our time to 
uh, pedagogy and teaching and at the same time, of course, research. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we need to know what practice want. Also, to engage with practitioner, to ask them to come as guest speaker in our classes. Um, I very often invite practitioners because they can talk about remedies, injunctions, um, war stories in a much more profound way compared to me. Uh, but I need to know about mm. how things work uh, precisely for that. And that really can help my student better. And I, at this point, I've taught long enough that I have many practitioners I know that are my former students, and so it's really important to remain engaged with um, alumni and former students and alumni that are, um, you know, long-term alumni, you know, more senior alumni in the law school to really make sure we have this wonderful interaction between practice and theory, Mm. Um, and that's very important for me. Yeah, Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's important for the students too right uh, absolutely and, uh, uh, do you often uh, like are practitioners you know always so willing to come in you know, uh, I found that practitioners are incredibly generous with their uh-huh. time uh, they really enjoy coming to the class mm-hmm. and uh, um, you know whether it's their alma mater or not they like to com- to give back to the student they enjoy talking to the student um, I have been uh, um, really pleased to see how generous practitioners uh, are with their time. And I'm, I'm saying, you know, people at the very high level, uh, you know, partner, senior partner, managing partner, uh, people in, in, in-house have been incredibly supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been very, very fortunate to work with a um, stellar cast of people throughout my career. And uh, they have, you know, always said yes, unless they couldn't because they were traveling mm-hmm. or they had a trial or a hearing that day. But um, the generosity um, of that community has been really wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, like we just had uh, a conference here, right? This was more geared toward professors, but like how helpful is, you know, these big conferences for students? Um, so I think uh, the conferences for students um, are very useful. Now, students tend to be a little bit overwhelmed with everything else, so perhaps they, 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 they don't see the immediate, the immediate usefulness. Uh, and, you know, the conference we just had was a conference international IP, so people can say, ah, oh, we are not going to practice international IP, but that's really not the case because student practicing intellectual property will do international registration, trademark will do international patents, uh, just because every, you know, trade is is international, uh, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and so it's always very useful. But I also think it's useful for students uh, to... Um, see people from different backgrounds, people from different schools. Um, and you never know. I mean, it's useful for connection in terms of network. It's always useful for connection in terms of knowledge that you gather. Um, and it's just useful as an experience. I, mm. Every experience is useful, and I think the more um, knowledge we can gather, the better. Now, truth the truth is we cannot be everywhere all the time. So we need to be very careful about planning and what we do when. Um, so I would very well understand if student cannot attend every conference. But I think it's good for students to be exposed, so to take advantage. I think here at Texas A&M, um, the IP faculty and, and the faculty in general is putting together an amazing um, lineup of events. So um, student can take advantage of a lot of these, and 
as a student, I still very well remember student, we have time and we don't use it the most efficiently. And then when we are practitioners uh, or we work, we don't have time. You know, time is a wonderful resource and uh, students have time and um, hopefully they, they go to these events because there's so much to just learn. And, and again, the, 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 the network is something that I think is really valuable. Uh, we start to realize that later on in life, but very often is really not uh, what you what you know, but is who you know, and uh, and um, and to be genuinely interested in topics and uh, know people can always help. At Texas A and it is no small task to choose which classes you should take each semester. Professor Caboli will make the decision just that much harder for you once you hear her class offerings. Um, so far, I've been teaching many different classes. Um, I was when I when I. Um, when I started at Marquette Law School, I did uh, teach um, international intellectual property, um, intellectual property survey. I taught international business transactions. I taught um, European law. Um, I taught also international public law um, a couple of years. Uh, but um, my main uh, class package, if we can call it like that, is always being IP survey, uh, international IP, trademarks, uh, copyright. Um, when uh, I um, taught in Singapore, I taught um, Foundation of Intellectual Property, and I taught, um, in, interestingly, Singapore law, which is very similar to U.S. law because mm. all the, the the Singapore law, it's a, um, an hybrid between EU law and uh, U.S. law because there is an FTA, a, a free trade agreement between Singapore and the U.S., and, um, of course, you know, the international agreement. So there is... Uh, um, the law in IP is highly harmonized, um, even though a national decision can't, uh, you know, can have a different, you know, slightly different interpretation. I also taught um, IP and international trade, mm. uh, and I taught a, cl- a class on comparative law, uh, comparative legal tradition, where I compare the common law versus the civil law using, uh, because I have the training in both. I, I was trained both as a civil law lawyer and a common law lawyer. Um, uh, where I compare the two systems and I look uh, at intellectual property harmonization um, in uh, general internationally and then in the European Union uh, and in the ASEAN economic community to make comparison. Um, I'm also currently, um, uh, currently I'm on leave from A&M, so I have not taught. Um, I taught, you know, very short um, intensive classes. I taught uh, art, law, art and cultural heritage this past summer. Um, I have done a very, very short module on fashion law, which was lots of fun. Mm. Um, uh, uh, in Singapore, I'm, um, I'm mostly doing uh, commercialization of intellectual property. Um, in, in, it's very interesting how um, we have uh, in countries like Singapore and many countries in Asia a strong interest in commercialization of IP as uh, a um, class um, in uh, the United States, we don't see that as much. We see licensing, we see contract drafting, licensing drafting, and some schools are start to do uh, commercialization of IP asset. Um, but I would say it was interesting for me to see how much more, in that sense, I'd, ahead perhaps Asia is, and uh, I, I've been doing um, that. Um, um, and, and the interesting thing is I'm not teaching law student in these classes. I'm teaching uh, business student, business mm. and engineering, uh, and mm. often people that are actually working and they're looking for 
um, additional expertise, uh, which is very interesting um, for me as well. Um, but sometimes I feel that there is too much interest commercialization of IP rather than understanding where, if we need to have IP protection for, from the start. And so mm. um, I actually don't, don't think the U.S. approach to go a little bit slower um, on, um, particularly in law schools, on the commercialization aspect um, probably is, is, is a good one. You want to have a very strong, solid basis on theory, uh, protection, um, and then uh, drafting, um, IP and trade, uh, and then you know move to the commercialization because that's something that in practice will probably be done more, uh, but it's useful for our lawyers to have a solid uh, preparation in the why. Mm -hmm. uh, why? Because that's something that you don't get in practice. I mean, you don't have the time anymore to go back to theory. So the, 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 the law school should give both a practical edge based on a strong theoretical foundation. I'm a major believer of that. So mm -hmm. You said you uh, teach, you taught fashion law. How, what was that class like? That class was a lot of fun. I, you know, it was a very, very, very short one, one credit class and was uh, in many ways an experiment. I hope uh, in the future to expand that. I hope to be able to transform it also in a um, trip abroad. Mm -hmm. I really would like to take students to Milan to the, uh, you know, looking at I don't think it would be possible during Fashion Week because it's um, it's too crowded. Mm. Uh, but I have many contacts in Milan in the fashion industry. When I practiced, I was practicing for an international law firm in, in Italy, uh, primarily doing work for fashion fashion labels. Mm. And uh, I think um, was very interesting. And what to me is really interesting about fashion law is that it's you know, a lot of people think it's a very frivolous area. In reality, it's very much not. So it's... Um, it's um it's an area of law that makes us think about identity. Uh, it could be called clothing law. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, it's uh, very similar to food law. Uh, food and clothing is something that we eat. Uh, we need to eat and we need to get dressed every day. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is something about specific industries uh, that have an enormous impact on uh, everyday's life of you know, millions and millions of people. Um, so fashion law is really about what's fashion, what is um, fashion as an expression, and fashion is not just luxury, luxury goods and luxury fashion, is everyday fashion, mass fashion, uh, fashion as a, as a message to be part of a group or to make a, a statement against certain value. So there is the... Um, anti-fashion uh, or fashion that is an anti-certain message. Mm. I mean, we have seen uh, uh, lately, and not just lately, we have seen throughout history, I would say, people uh, using clothing to express dissent or to express consent mm. uh, politically uh, or for certain causes. Yeah. Um, at the same time, uh, um, so fashion is very much about groups, identity, uh, rejection of certain identity. Uh, it can mingle with political um, or socially related causes. Um, and then there is the question, how do we protect fashion and what are the 
the avenues the Supreme Court has just decided a very important decision um, in the a case, um, Star Atletica, about cheerleading uniforms, saying that you know certain designs are basically copyrightable. And so the protection, you know, the class, of course, discusses the protection, the intellectual property protection for fashion and the effect of this protection in terms of incentives. I, I come from Italy, and so Italy has a very strong protection through certain special design uh, patents, are called ornamental patents uh, for you know, several type of fashion items. At the same time, there is in Europe um, industrial design protection that also embraces fashion. Um, and so we also dealt with the comparative aspect. Uh, but at the same time, we also look at the impact of the fashion industry and the production uh, on the environment. Fashion, particularly fast fashion, is the second polluter after oil for the planet. Mm. Uh, so our the high cost of cheap fashion for the world is something that people don't understand. Mm. Uh, clearly, you know, people people just don't know when they buy something that is cheap. There is very much a reason why something is cheap. Probably the workers are uh, grossly underpaid, if not, you know, kept in extremely um, uh, terrible condition. Uh, and at the same time, um, several materials, uh, particularly the the, the nylons or the polyesters or the uh, non-natural materials are very difficult to be um, uh, recycled and they really end up to pollute. Mm. Um, so there is much more to, um, you know, what the class also discusses the environmental issues related to fashion. Um, mm. But at the same time, of course, you know, sometimes the, the, the mislabeling on the fair trade, fair uh, fashion that sometimes is not that fair uh, because mm. our labeling laws are not as clear. Um, so the impact of the clothing industry rather than the fashion industry on uh, environment, on labor, um, and they tie in, you know, with the international trade um, and sometimes, you know, the, the current pushback against international trade, when we take it out of the inflammatory rhetoric uh, that we have seen, uh, you know, there is much to be said about uh, people needing to have a much more serious discussion about international trade and who are the winners, who are the losers. And often the people are the losers and uh, mm. uh, the workers are the losers um, um, all over the world. Um, and so that's that's something that comes out in the class. It's, it's really a fascinating class. And um, I, I, you know, they, I was asked, ah, do you have only girls in the class? And the reality is, no, I had boys in, as well. And people who are uh, perhaps not the, the, the fashion icons that actually were very generally interested in how the clothing industry works. Mm. And uh, people with children that were, uh, ended up saying they were very interested and very happy to have learned things that matter to them now you know having kids they want to make sure the kids wear clothes that mm. are safe they mm. so that was actually um, a very uh, interesting things for me to do I, I really enjoyed it I hope the students enjoyed it the same we're always sure to get some final advice from our professors and we were able to get Professor Caboli to give us some as well so you know I I I don't like to give too many advices. Uh, I mean, of course, I like to give advices, but I think it's always very important to go um, on a case-by-case -case basis. You know, uh, every student has their own stories and, uh, you know, their own needs. And and people, you know, it's it's not necessarily good to generalize and, you know, one size doesn't fit all. But one of the things I think students 
should do is to take advantage of the many opportunities that law school gives them. And I would say here at Texas A&M, students are extremely fortunate. Um, the, the, the administration, the dean is really committed to help and support, uh, open doors for the students. So I really think students should take advantage of that. Uh, at the same time, I think students should also be open-minded. Um, one of the things I strongly suggest students in, uh, during the law school time is not to, unless they're already working and they know clearly they want to do a certain type of law, um, which might also not be the case. Not many people know exactly what they want to do later, or even if they're working, there is always a major advantage in broadening the type of sub subject you are taking. Do take things um, that um, you might not think you want to practice, but they might be practically relevant. Um, I would say to everybody, take tax law, take, take um, you know, really attend classes related to finance and taxes because they can, they can really serve you a lot later. Um, take employment laws, take, um, don't uh, cabin yourself too narrow. Um, take international public law, it will it will be useful later, um, and in many ways, it can actually give you a good understanding of the international framework and just make you better understanding the news. Um, take business classes, uh, but also don't forget, um, you know, some of the public interest classes. I think I think the public law classes, administrative law, for example, is crucial. Um, also for intellectual property lawyers later. Um, um, A&M has a very strong environmental law uh, program. I would say mm. um, I would strongly advise students to get some exposure because now um, environmental law concern will trickle in every type of law and every type of business. Um, you know, we can see that perhaps now the current U.S. approach um, seems to be a little bit uh, bringing us back, but I don't believe that. I think there is a lot of rhetoric that um, is probably more political than anything else. I think people from all over um, in companies in particular, if, um, uh, they are, um, you know, very not necessarily committed to, to environmental protection. They understand that it's a business need. And so that makes a lot of business sense. And, and, uh, and uh, I think students would benefit from get exposure. Um, overall, I think students should also do things that are practical. I know we, we have incredible clinics here. I would strongly recommend students to be involved with the clinics. Uh, that gi will give them not just good skills, but also some stories to tell to the employers. Mm -hmm. um, and again, network. You can know people. Um, at the same time, try to get involved in more courts and in, in, in things that are extracurricular. Um, do things like you, Preston, are doing. You know, do do this. You know, you have been, I would say, wonderful in uh, leading the IP students and uh, you know the intellectual property society and these extracurricular activities. That's really, really something that you will take with you both personally and professionally. Um, you know, that will always be in your CV, and people like your professor will always be excited to give great recommendation and. And, and that's something I think is really important. So students should, in my opinion, think broad and some, in some way have a strategy, but also be ready to rebalance their strategy and use the resources. You have advisors here, you have people who cares, don't worry 
um, you know, you just walk, you know, just make an appointment with your professors, make an appointment with the student services. There are so many people ready to help. Mm-hmm. Use them. That's my main, main advice. Use the people because the people are here to help you and they really are not just willing, but they are really interested in helping. So just use them. Many thanks go out to Professor Kaboli for being on our podcast today. I have one more episode with Professor Kaboli to discuss geographic indications, so tune in next time. The intro is a mashup of music from Peace, you can find it on SoundCloud, and Supreme Court audio from OEA. On the sax, we have our very own Matt Pellegrino. This has been Skilled in the Art. I am Preston Morgan. Thanks for listening.